Hello, and welcome back to On the Nose. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Ariel Angel. I'm joined by Senior Editor Ari Brostoff, Contributing Writer Rebecca Pierce, and Associate Editor Mari Cohen. And today we're going to talk about two films, autobiographical Jewish filmmaker films that I think are both pretty much Oscar contenders, the Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans, and the James Gray film, Armageddon Time. I think we'll start by talking about The Fablemans. Did everyone get The Fablemans reference in the title? Like the fact that he has spiel, the Yiddish word for play, in his name. It took me a while. Yes, I love that. Maybe I'll kick it to you, Ari, since you have had such a transformative experience with this film. It's true. It's a transformative experience. I saw The Fablemans last weekend not expecting to like it and wound up loving it, finding it beautiful and moving and then being so embarrassed by my own reaction that I decided to double down and watch four more Spielberg movies this weekend so that I could really make a case for why I think Spielberg is actually a great director. (laughs) The Fablemans is an autobiographical film. It's about a boy named Sammy Fableman who discovers the movies and starts using his parents' camera to make his own little movies in his house. And the film kind of follows the two paths of his maturation as a director. He's very precocious as a director, as a young boy. And so we kind of follow him through his filmmaking adventures. And simultaneously, we watch his family kind of alternately have... Uh, I think really like lovely relationship with each other and also eventually implode. That's kind of the conceit is that we're, we're watching him learn to make movies through his family in many different ways at once. What did you like about it? I mean, first of all, in the way of any kind of uh, autobiographical auteur movie, like, uh, I don't know, like eight and a half or there's a, Almodovar movie that I really love called uh, Pain and Glory, or even like Cinema Paradiso, which is like uh, so schmaltzy, but was like a movie I really loved as a kid. I think there's a way that you get to just see the world through his camera, and he's kind of showing you the process of what he's seeing through his camera in a way that kind of teaches you how to watch his movies. And I think one thing that is that uh, kind of cool that he does at the beginning is locates his desire to make movies actually in a fear of movies. He goes to see Cecil B. DeMille, the greatest show on earth, and he gets really scared in a moment where there's a train hurtling toward the viewer. And his mom gets him a train set for Hanukkah and suggests that he film a crash in his toy train set so that he can kind of master it and watch it over and over again. I think that that's a really lovely origin story and both felt very like familiar and also I think was a cool window into the way that like the kind of fun action adventure sides of the Spielberg filmography and the like dysfunctional family sides of it come together because uh, as the film goes along, he starts trying to master the kind of breakdown of his family also through film. Also, Michelle Williams is like, I think, really amazing. 
Yeah. You look incredibly skeptical. I think Michelle Williams had a lot of heart in this film, but I have to say that this and Armageddon Time kind of like Jewish representation pilled me a little bit. Oh, really? I sort of see what people are complaining about with having these wasp actresses play Jewish women because there was something that felt very awkward. Like the Fablemans, I, w- I want to say, like won me over by the end, but something about the pacing and the dialogue and the delivery and the casting felt awkward to me throughout the film. Every place that you had someone who wasn't Jewish depicting this Jewish family life. And I, I read a little bit about Steven Spielberg responding. There was a little bit of a controversy around her casting. And he was like, well, she really reminded me of my mom. I don't doubt that. But there's like this Jewish sarcasm and warmth that I felt like was kind of in the script that didn't translate super well into per- her performance, even as she was bringing like a lot of feeling to it. So like, I'm not going to say it was like totally miscast or anything like that, but it just felt like, I was like, oh, I see why people want Jewish women playing Jewish women <laughs> a little bit more now. I had like a different read. So I love Tony Kushner, but I am like super anti the Kushner Spielberg crossover. Like every time it happens, I'm like, this is a mistake. And I think one of the things that like took me until this film to realize what is wrong with it. And it's actually like, you know, when you have like a stage actor acting for film and it's like too big or something, it's like on stage, they say you're supposed to make every expression, everything like much bigger. You're playing for the people in the back. They need to be able to like see and hear you and like get something from it. There's something about the way that this movie was acted and written that is like a play in a not good way. Like there's there's kind of like a denaturalization happening that like made me feel like I was watching a movie from like the time before Brando or something, or like, it was almost like an uncanny valley of like where the acting fell, you know, like, were they trying to be naturalistic or was it something else? And if I'm being like as generous to Spielberg as I can be, I'm thinking like, oh, maybe it's like a self-conscious depiction of how things look in memory or something. And that accounts for the exaggeration. But I still found it extremely strange. And then even that started to feel annoying to me because in reading about it, he's like, yeah, all this stuff happened. All this stuff is true, blah, blah, blah. And then it made me kind of doubt like whether any of it was true. Like it made me feel like that's the kind of thing that's like true in one's memory as a way to self-mythologize, but maybe not as true. And then like the details started to annoy me like (laughs) in that regard. I do think I kind of wish that he would stop like going in interviews and saying it all happened that way because it's just a little bit less interesting. Like I think it's much more interesting to just kind of wonder or to like not really be thinking as much about the autobiography. I do think that there is exaggeration in the film, but I think it precisely works in part because I mean, partly what you're saying, Ariel, about the way in which it's like about this sort of like magnified effect of memory. But I think it's also about like the magnified and artificial effect of like characterization in films. I think I felt that it worked for this subject matter because there have been times when I think that Spielberg tries to apply this sort of like artificiality or like grandiosity not just like in characterization but also like in plot you know the sense of sort of like neatness and schmaltiness and he tries to like apply that to historical and political events right so like Lincoln for example or like he has a, a movie about the Amistad slave rebellion and it follows this like very kind of like predictable formula of like a white man making like a very beautiful speech but it's like this type of arc that's like very satisfying 
when I was like, you know, maybe like a 15 year old, like budding history major and something I would now recognize as being very frustrating. And I found that that kind of like application actually worked really well for this particular story, because it was this kind of story around like family and like memory and film and magic. And there's like a bit, lot of self-consciousness about that in the film. Obviously, I think it like comes most clearly in the scene where he's filmed his you know senior class and then shows it at the assembly and then has that intense confrontation with the popular Aryan. Obviously, that's like this clear moment when we're supposed to like see Spielberg acknowledging that he has this kind of like artificial touch in films. And I did find that kind of compelling. Could we zero in on the scene that you're talking about? So there's a scene where they've moved to California. He's in a very non-Jewish white school and he's being bullied in kind of like the classical way. You kill Jesus, bagels in the locker, etc. And he's getting beaten up. And he kind of finds both like a means of revenge and a means of acceptance in, first of all, dating a like seemingly evangelical girl who's popular and like really wants him to accept Jesus. And secondly, by filming the class and he films one of the bullies who has beaten him up in a way that makes him into this kind of like Aryan God. And then afterwards the guy is very upset. Like he's confused by both the impulse of it and he feels in a certain kind of way that it's a lie, that he's never going to be able to measure up to the person that he's put on screen. I really love that because, you know, I think that the most obvious way that you would go about getting revenge on a bully by filming them would be to make them look small and weak and undignified. And instead, what Spielberg's character does is he makes him look, as you said, Ariel, like, you know, like an Aryan god. I mean, it's like a Lady Reifenstahl sequence. He's like leading his gang of six foot blonde, shirtless, 17 year olds, like running through a banner and they're like being shot from below and they're gods. And I know when I first saw the footage, I thought like, what a weird move. Like it seemed like such a desperate kind of fawning plea for acceptance. And then the other shoe drops, I think, in this really clever way where the bully confronts him and says, essentially, why did you make me look so strong and powerful? What that revealed to me is that actually it's you who has control over my image and I can never live up to that image of myself that you created. I don't know. I think that's really fucking smart as like an origin story for a certain kind of like anti-Semitic trepidation around Jews in Hollywood that like that's like where the power lies is like in the ability to like literally capture the Aryan body and like put it on display and in a way therefore also kind of control it and offer the power also to like withhold that fawning gaze. There are two anti-Semitic bullies in this film. The one who's more physically violent is the one that he kind of captures in that Aryan God way that you're talking about. And then the other bully who actually makes a lot of the anti-Semitic comments and is kind of like leading that and puts the bagel in his locker is shown as totally pathetic in the film. 
you see him like trying to pick up on girls and getting rejected and like losing in volleyball and like slinking off. So it's interesting. There's like the two sort of powers that the camera has, which is to like put someone on a pedestal and to put them down and they're both angry at him. And so it's just this interesting thing to see the, that kind of dual power. And I think the power is really about the gaze. Mm-hmm. But also like it really visualized how that jock nerd trope has been Jewish coded all along. Like this idea of the Aryan male versus the like shrinking Jewish nebbish. You know, it's throughout cinema history, but then the Jewishness gets removed to make it a universal story. And so I thought that it really contextualized that whole trope in this legacy of anti-Semitism for me in a way that like made me really appreciate that and then made that final scene after the film is screened just have that much more payoff because you can see like, well, that's the power of the camera. I mean, I was glad you brought up that there were these two bullies. It's interesting in terms of thinking about two strategies, like navigating an anti-Semitic environment. One strategy is like capturing someone. The other strategy is humiliating someone. with the camera. And it's like interesting to think about what he was doing as a navigation. And Sammy Fableman is kind of like, I don't know why I did it. And I very much believe the way that Sammy behaves in that situation. But I still come back to like, what's up with this like suddenly hyper self-aware bully? And this is where I get to the weird speaking for those in the back thing that I just feel a little bit weird about. Like, There could have been a way to play that scene where that guy has less of an awareness about what has happened to him and is just as sort of confused about it as Fableman is. But yeah, I love love what you were saying, Rebecca, about the gaze and the ways in which that has been a part of a lot of cinema. And I think also what I liked about it was I liked that it had a sense of humor about all of it, like in terms of when he's like with the girlfriend and then she's like, you know, trying to like get him to like pray. But there's just some sort of sense of humor about it, like an acknowledgement that like what he's going through is very hard and like very overt, but it's not like being talked about as if he's being like persecuted by the Gestapo. And it's not melodramatic. I do think that that's commendable. And also like the way he gets with this girl is after the first time they're bullied, he gets back at the jock who later is portrayed well in his film by like telling his girlfriend, oh, I just saw him like making out with his redhead on the stairs. The jock then is like, you have to go tell my girlfriend that that was a lie. And he tries to do it and they bust him. And her best friend is the Christian girl. So there's this way that he's worked his bullying into him, like getting some that I found like very funny and, you know, brought some self-awareness to it. It's like, he's not, he's not just suffering. He's like working the situation to his advantage by kind of being smarter and more sincere and better than the people who are messing with him. Well, they're not necessarily like a, a faultless person, certainly like better than the people who are messing with him. I want to give Ari a chance to give their grand Spielberg theory. But I mean, I think we should talk about the mother character. Yeah, I mean, I think I really agree with you, Ariel, about Michelle Williams playing the mother in just a totally different register than everybody else. And definitely agree that it kind of denaturalizes the movie. To be clear, I don't think she's the only one. I mean, I think Paul Dano is also acting that way. Right. He's like melodramatically recessive or something. Yeah. I mean, what I have learned is that Spielberg is totally obsessed with mothers. There's a sort of larger than life mother or maternal figure in every one of the five Spielberg movies that I've now seen. And part of what I think is interesting about that is Fableman's is the only one where 
you would sort of expect that going in just from the premise. So I think part of what is so uncanny about Fablemans, but that I liked about it, is that the kind of sci-fi, metaphysical, unnatural aspect of the world that you always have in a Spielberg movie, you know, like hovering around the edges in some case, or, you know, as the actual genre of the movie in other cases, in this case, it actually like locates itself in the mother itself. And my grand theory of Spielberg that I came out of this with was, I think I was just wondering, like, in the way film history is told from the 70s onward, it's like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg both made these like blockbuster hits like Star Wars and Jaws, you know, that kind of fundamentally ended like a regime of independent cinema and like brought in this Hollywood blockbuster era. And I kind of hate Star Wars. And part of why I think I hate Star Wars is just that like, you have to fucking like deal with the Star Wars extended universe everywhere. And that's really not true for Spielberg. And I started thinking about why that was like, there's like a kind of kid and indeed like a kind of adult that's like a Star Wars guy. And I was thinking about why is there no Spielberg guy? Because there really isn't like, despite his immense impact on American filmmaking, like that is not a kind of guy. And what I came out of this week of Spielberg fandom with is that I think it's because the Star Wars movies are famously daddy movies and the Spielberg movies are such intensely mommy movies in a way that I think makes them both kind of supposed to be like for everyone. Like they're like for the American people. And they also like repel subculture because like you kind of just like can't be that public about like uh, being like that obsessed with your mom. (laughs) That doesn't translate into fandom. But Spielberg just continually fucking does it. I just feel very impressed by his tenacity. I, I want to offer a different theory of why there aren't <laughs> why there aren't Spielberg nerds. Well, I think that there kind of are, but they become film nerds because Star Wars, because there's so much of the property, becomes this self-contained universe. Spielberg is like someone who this was like a love letter to film, but everything he does is like a love letter to film. Spielberg was involved in Animaniacs, which did y'all watch that growing up? Yeah, I loved Animaniacs, and it made us all these like culture nerds because it brought in these influences like Spielberg kind of cites his sources in a way that like makes you a film person at the end of that versus this particular subset of like pop culture sci-fi one quick plug since we brought up the Animaniacs is the Scorsese Fiddler episode where like the good feathers who are like a play on the goodfellas are perched on a statue of Scorsese doing Fiddler but about Scorsese. We can perch as Scorsese's head. Why can't we perch as Scorsese's head? Good fetish perch as Scorsese's head. Sparrow should perch as Scorsese's head. <laughs> the layers of, it's kind of like the Simpsons in like terms of the layers of, of reference happening. <laughs> I want to talk about Armageddon time through the frame of merit. I mean, definitely there's kind of like an American dream thing happening in the Fablemans with this like a manifest destiny where they're like move further and further west as the father gets more and more money. And also with Sammy Fableman's own meritorious ascent through the ranks of filmmaking, although we don't see that stuff, it's all off screen. And Armageddon Time is a really different story, but nonetheless is really concerned with the question of merit. 
one of the the very loud things in the film is that the main character, whose name I don't even remember, oh, Paul, Paul Graf, is kind of not book smart, like school's not really his thing, but he has the money to go to a private school. And in that private school, there are the Trumps. Fred Trump is like the main donor to the school. And Mary Trump, who at the time is like district attorney or something, shows up and and the speeches are very much like, you will get there from working hard and that'll be the reason why you make it. And nobody will ever be able to tell you that you didn't make it for working hard. And it seems like that's a real kind of flashpoint in the film, which obviously contrasts Paul to his friend Johnny, who is a black kid living with his grandmother. The grandmother is very ill the foster care people are kind of coming by and trying to get him into foster care. He doesn't really have a lot of home life to speak of or supervision. And so there's this question of like, what if their roles were reversed? I mean, the the intelligence of the film is asking us in a very unsubtle way to think about merit, the question of merit. What do people think about it? The ending I liked kind of the best. I agree. But it didn't quite earn it. Yeah. You know, so the film, the title of the film comes from the Clash cover of a ska or reggae song, Armageddon Time. And that song is playing throughout the film. So it's like referencing this idea of rebellion and like rejecting your unearned privilege, kind of. But that never actually happens. Yeah. You know, the reason that Paul ultimately succeeds in life is because his Black friend takes the fall for like a crime that was his idea. And the reason that happens is because his dad had like done something for the cops on the case and also just because he's white. I felt like being tortured for me a little bit to watch this film because you can just see where that's heading. And like, why are you giving me this like smart, interesting black character who like loves NASA and all this stuff when I know it's just to like tear him down in the end so that the white kid learns a lesson? I like, even if that's what happened in the director's life, I don't personally need to watch that again. It hurts me. And then you have the clash playing in the background the whole time. And I'm like, why? The closest like explanation for that is that scene where the grandfather is telling the son that he has to stand up against the racism at his school when he moves to the private school. They're incredibly, even more overtly racist than when he was in public school with Johnny. But he never actually does that. So there's no like payoff. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like he's, they're definitely reaching for something. Like there are some like sophisticated things that are happening in the film. Like the grandfather is really like kind of anti-racist in his own particular way, but his wife is a total racist. And like, I was glad that they did that, right? It's like these two people are married. He's getting one kind of messaging from one person and one kind of messaging from the other. And I also sort of was glad that it wasn't like a white savior narrative either, where Paul kind of is able to help Johnny in some kind of way where everybody gets to feel good about it. Like, I was kind of glad that he screwed up. But then again, like, it does seem to suggest in a way that there is some way out of the failing that we never see, you know, because it ends on this idea of we're just going to keep fighting, but we haven't seen him begin to fight. And in fact, the opposite, like he never really even stands up to his friends, you know, the most that he kind of does is like tune out Fred Trump. I mean, what did you guys make of the scene in the car with Jeremy Strong, who I just want to shout out, I think was very convincing and very good. So just to lay it out, Paul has suggested to his friend Johnny that they steal a computer from his school and they go do that. And Johnny 
takes it into a pawn shop. The pawn guy calls it in. The cops arrest Johnny and also catch Paul in the process. Johnny's like in there in handcuffs. Paul's not handcuffed. The cops kind of interrogate them and are very concerned about Paul and what he's mixed up in, but not very concerned about Johnny. Paul seemingly is going to like say that it was his fault. I guess he does say it, but Johnny takes the blame for some reason. And like, we should talk about like why that is written in that way, like why Johnny takes the blame. And at the same time, the father shows up, he has a relationship with the cop, he fixed something for him for free. And they get to take him home. So in the car on the way home, the father, who, by the way, like we've already seen him be like very violent with Paul. So like we're we're kind of expecting some outburst or like temper tantrum, basically recognizes what Paul's going through and says, listen, like, I'm sorry about your friend. It's fucked up. But if somebody gives you a leg up, you have to take it. And like, this is your leg up and we have to take this opportunity because it's come to us. Yeah. And I feel like that does become sort of like this, like send home monologue in a way, like it's placed in the movie where the moment of emotional resolution or clarity might be placed. And so it's like, the question is like, what exactly is maybe is Gray doing by like placing it at that moment in the film and making it this like emotional climax? I mean, I, the way that I read it was like, there's so much uh, political incoherence in Paul's family like they consider themselves liberals, they're booing for Reagan, right? Versus like once he winds up in prep school, the kids are cheering for Reagan. There's these kinds of messages that the grandfather is giving about like historical persecution that seem like they're kind of going in the direction of like solidarity and uh, anti-racism. But then at like the very same kitchen table, you have uh, other people saying either just explicitly racist things or just versions of like uh, kind of precursors to the idea of when someone gives you a leg up, you have to take it. And I think what is really striking about the scene that you're talking about, Ariel, is that that's the moment at which those contradictions become acute and unbearable for the adults in the room, like their earlier incoherence doesn't necessarily play out as like an argument necessarily, right? It's like, I think it's actually very realistic in the way that these conversations sometimes go. It's like, somebody's kind of racist, somebody else doesn't really like that, but it's all kind of conducted through like passive aggression or like, pass me the potatoes, like it doesn't come to confrontation. And in that moment, circumstances have gotten to a point where Jeremy Strong has to actually confront himself And that is where he lands. And it's like a profoundly unsettling answer that basically amounts to his own kind of admission of like moral cowardice. You know, it's kind of him standing behind his own cowardice. And that seems to be the jumping off point for Paul to eventually kind of take this symbolic step like out of his prep school at the very end where it seems like he's, you know, running away or like he's like no longer going to be complicit But I think what complicity means here or what what refusing complicity means is extremely unclear. And I do think that it's like, it's not a white savior narrative, but it almost feels like the kind of like punk Antifa version of a white savior narrative. Like, no, he can't like uh, overcome these structural forces on his own, but he is in some way saved by the fact that he walks out and is sort of ennobled by that. And you kind of, you know, and the Clash song is playing overhead and you kind of, 
get the sense that what we've been watching all along, because he's also like this very sensitive artist kid, and you get the sense that what you've been watching all along is a white kid in the 80s who is going to become an artist and get into punk rock and be like an outsider and a rebel, and that his soul will in some way be saved because of that. I think the problem, you know, it's just to continue on what you're saying is that it's just the aesthetics and none of the sort of like action. Like what makes the clash like actually punk was like playing things like rock against racism and being involved in like actual anti-fascist cultural movements. Whereas this is just like playing the soundtrack to that and you get the feeling of it, you know, there's a truth to that though. There's a truth to like how this generation did that. And I kind of love that the film ends and it's the Reagan era, you know? Totally. And they've achieved their little safety, their little foothold into, like, the train of, like, white supremacy and they're going to be good. And they can be uncomfortable with that. But, like, the train is moving forward. And for people like Johnny, it's just getting worse. That was – there was some truth to that. Totally. I mean, I just – I did not enjoy watching the film. But I feel like the more we talk about it, the more I have an appreciation for the sophistication of some of the choices, you know? Like just in terms of like presenting the fact of Jews doing these things to get by, even if they quote unquote know they're wrong or whatever, in ways that are not like wholly condemning on some level, like in ways that just kind of like are just looking at them. I I think that is kind of a sophisticated move, but I agree that it's sort of unsatisfying because it still wants you to believe that Paul is going to be different, but it gives you no evidence that he will be. It like suggests more redemption for the characters than they kind of like deserve. And like, it may have been a better choice to leave like a lot less light there in terms of like how we're supposed to see Paul. The the supposed conclusion to the narrative that we do get, knowing that it's an autobiographical film, is the fact that the director then grew up and made this movie, right? Like that's like the imposed ending. And it's almost like the opposite of like, the Spielberg message, right? Which is like, holy shit, you're going to make a movie about this and that's going to change everything. Whereas like in this situation, it's like, okay, what? You're going to grow up and make a movie about it? Like, that's it? Yeah, yeah, right. And so that also feels unsatisfying. I will say, I think that there was one really kind of amazing scene when the boys are in the police station together and they're being interrogated. There's a moment where the cops are out of the room and they're having this exchange with each other where Paul is saying, like, it's my fault, I'm going to take the rap. And Johnny is saying, like, "Eh, don't even bother, like, what's the point? I mean, I think that, like, both kids actually just give, like, really remarkable performances throughout. But in that moment, I actually thought something happened where the kind of hovering Holocaust narrative that you get through the grandpa actually gets reactivated through them. I don't exactly know how deliberate that seemed maybe it wasn't but I did think that there was that one moment where I don't know it's like the camera kind of like comes down to eye level for them and like you know they're like little boys but they suddenly take on the features of like adult men in like a life or death prison camp scenario and you just see them processing like incredibly existential facts that will follow both of them for the rest of their lives so entirely differential ways I thought that that for me was the moment where the Holocaust background, which had felt actually a little bit like gratuitous before, and it felt a little like preachy or something to me before, like in that moment, like those two sides of the movie kind of came together. I think for me that that's the moment where Paul becomes aware of something that Johnny has clearly known from the beginning, 
which is just how stacked the odds are against him. From like the first time we see him, he's been held back. He's just never given a chance. And then Paul and that scene where then the police station becomes aware of it. Like before it was just kind of like, he's like, oh, I would stand up for you if you were really in trouble. And he realizes how hollow that promise is, which Johnny kind of treated as hollow from the beginning. He's like, what are you going to do? And that's that moment on the subway earlier when Johnny gets bullied by the other black kids for kind of like having dreams and he's pushing Paul away. And Paul's so hurt by that. Like, I think Paul comes to understand like what the kind of like resignation of that moment was. Like everyone becomes resigned to it. So you kind of see this, the starkness of the system. I mean, how would the movie be different if Johnny didn't take the rap? Well, I think what the movie is strongly suggesting is that it wouldn't have mattered that he would have gotten the rap whether or not he had taken it. And so he makes some kind of choice to like jump off the cliff into the future that he has already been told is going to await him. But I don't think that it's spun as like like a noble act. I think it's spun as like, this is like an act of suicidal knowingness. I hate that. <laughs> like, okay, it's like realistic. Yeah, totally. But I hate that this character just existed for that. Yeah. It's just, it's grim. I mean, it's like part of the reason why the movie like kind of doesn't work. It also feels like you never see anyone who cares about Johnny, like except for like one second you see the grandmother and she's yeah. just sort of nodding as he says, I'm leaving. Right. I feel like a grandma went, might be like, where, where do you think you're going? Even if she was sick, you got a sense that like Paul and like by extension, the director never really got to see that part of black life and that there are like someone might actually care about a black kid. Yeah. You just sort of saw him on his own in the system. And so that like that lack of deeper knowing of Black people and Black community. Like he had a cousin come in to take care of the grandma. Why isn't the cousin? I don't know. I had a lot of questions. I also had a lot of questions about like how completely alone he was and how it felt like a device. Yeah, it reduced him to a device so he didn't feel like a person. And so there's also less less stakes of like, you know, part of a, an individual's tragedy is the, how that impacts the community. And, and him disappearing seemed to mean nothing to no one. And I think that for me took this from something that's like maybe based in like real dynamics to something that's like, it's like a different version of the kind of mammy trope in a way because he's like guiding Paul through this learning process and that's his whole existence. Yeah. I feel like there's one more thing that I feel like we didn't get to touch on, which is kind of like these older Jewish male figures in both of the films. I mean, Mari, you said you wanted to talk about the great uncle and Fablemans, but I also think that the grandfather in Armageddon time kind of deserves a little bit more attention. I mean, also just because, I mean, it's like interesting that it's both like kind of these grandfathery figures that are kind of like the knowing characters. It's almost like they're like magical grandfathers, you know, accented, marred by like real anti-Semitism who like have all the answers. I think it's like a commentary. In my reading, it's a commentary on assimilation in a way. Like, there's something that, like, these real OG, like, Jews who experience Europe know that Jews in America have forgotten. And I think that it's, a, in part, a lesson about what it means to be an oppressed person, what it means to have solidarity, what it means to be a Jew. And that part of Jewishness that, like, they're trying to reach for and hold on to is exemplified in these characters. And the, and the harshness of how the world really is when you're not in this American white bubble, can I just like share a little family story that happened to me recently, which I think Ari and Mari may know, that I went to a family reunion in Columbus, Ohio, a couple months ago, maybe last summer or something. And I was sitting at a table with 
some cousins of mine, like mostly a boomer generation. And they were asking me how my work was going and whatever. And then they started asking me if I supported the terrorist BDS movement. And it became a very intense argument about Palestine. And my great uncle, who is like got to be close to 90 now, leaned over to me and he said, you're wasting your breath. You're talking to people who have never suffered. I mean, that's really the the grandfather from Armageddon time, like in a nutshell. Well, it's a version in which like personal oppression and like experience of suffering leads to like greater solidarity and greater empathy, which I think we know is also not always the case and not always like the role that these people play. But it is interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's not totally clear also the extent to which the grandfather himself isn't it? It's like a story like his mom had watched her parents murdered by the Cossack, right? And then they went to Liverpool. His mom went to Liverpool and then they immigrated to the US. But I guess it's not totally clear what the circumstances were. But it's kind of interesting how like even the grandfather himself is kind of slightly removed. Mm-hmm. And also in some ways it is interesting for like this movie to even tell that story just because I feel like in a lot of US popular culture, there's this idea that like all the Jews who came here actually fled the Holocaust when like often it's actually people who left before the Holocaust or, you know, fled pogroms or just other economic isolation or whatever. So it's kind of, it was kind of interesting in that way. But I just wasn't totally sure like what the payoff was. It felt a little bit Pollyanna-ish in some ways for him to be like spouting these like great messages of solidarity. Well, again, they don't do anything with it. Yeah. I liked the great uncle in the Fablemans. I mean, I think it was gimmicky for sure. I just thought like this question around like art and family, even though it was like so obvious, like he just like tears you apart. Like he literally screams it in your face. But I thought it was like kind of fun. And it was something I had actually been thinking about at that moment. And it's also just like interesting to sort of think about like how the movie itself handles it because then this question of like how his art is going to impact his family becomes like a major plot point. Is that guy Jewish? Because if that guy's not Jewish, then I don't care about anything. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's Judd Hirsch. He is Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, forget it. Okay, fine. You have to cast Jews sometimes. I love that that's where we've landed. This question I always have when this stuff is happening is like, so these like, say you're just like a white Christian background American theater going and you're like going to these movies and they're just like all about the Jews like I'm so fascinated by that like are you like okay we get it like the Jews again are you like oh this is really interesting oh like they really suffered and these like conflicts are so interesting and wow he was called Bagelman I just like I'm not saying it's bad like I think it's obviously very interesting I just like sometimes wonder like what Jewishness is doing in these movies for like a general audience and like what does that mean I'm like so curious about how people react to that I feel I think that like what for people who are white Christians, white Jewish stories, ones that don't directly in, indict them, um, are a way of like feeling like there are oppressed people you can relate to, actually. Like I think that like if you watch this film from a white Christian lens, there's not that much that you wouldn't relate to other than the specifics of being Jewish and the experiences of anti-Semitism. They're situated in a cultural context that is like very visible in our country if, if you haven't experienced it. And like after a certain point of assimilation, like not so different from what a wasp or Catholic person or whatever might experience. And I think it's a, a little bit safer way of like getting a view into an experience that has some legacy of oppression without like you're watching like a black story or a native story or something you're gonna feel like the bad guy i don't think a lot of white christians watch things like this even if they are showing anti-semitism like in the fablemans people aren't gonna feel like oh i'm like the bullies they're gonna feel like oh i'm like steven spielberg and so i think it is it's an opportunity for vicarious experiences of otherness that doesn't feel so other 
And I think that's why people tend to eat up stuff like this. And I also think that in a way, it's a very circular question because uh, I think it is movies that helped create the particular structure of assimilation that white Jewishness in the U.S. has taken. So the fact that the Fablemans can like exist at all like it's also kind of sitting on the shoulders of like several decades of filmmaking and other kinds of cultural production that have told essentially that story over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like, I actually don't think that we even have any idea what like the post sixties iteration of Jewish assimilation would look like if it was not in this continuous loop of mass market storytelling. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like it's kind of newer. Like, what are like the major like Jewish assimilation stories? I mean, like there's some, but I feel like I can count them on one hand. Well, I don't know. I'm thinking of just some like very basic Jewish American cultural touchstones from like Fiddler to, you know, Poor Noise Complaint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it actually has a lot to do with filmmaking and casting that like doesn't even always tell the story directly. But you, like, start having Jews and, like, particularly white Jewish men cast in leading roles. I mean, I don't know. I think Spielberg is, like, such a good example here. I don't know how many of his movies pre-Schindler's List actually dealt with Jewishness at all. But, like, the fact that you have that particular gaze with its particular kind of interest in, like... The kid that gets beat up. Right, like what Rebecca was saying, the kind yeah. of coded Jewish Yeah, experience. exactly. Like if you put that code in the opposite direction, like the code works both ways, I guess is what I'm saying. Both also in the direction of like what Americanness looks like. Yeah, exactly. Jewish assimilation stories are like incredibly old. Like the jazz singer, mm-hmm. like one of the first talkies with synchronized music. Also a story like a guy from a Jewish family who like, takes up this performing art. It's like not cool with his family, but it's like his way into Americanness. And also he puts on blackface <laughs> in the process. So there's some, there's something like that's actually foundational to film about Jewish stories. And, and the, because of it, like the fact that the film industry was like open to Jewish folks at a time when not all industries were, we got in there, we were telling these stories. And there's something quintessential about Americanness assimilation as it happened to Jews, it also happened to, like, these other groups that, like, makes these stories feel universal. Like, if you're Italian-American, you might feel something watching this based on your own family history or Irish-American or whatever. There's something that's repeated and happened to a lot of people but because of who Jews are culturally in the United States and who Jews are culturally in the West, you know, because we are a reference point for Christianity in some ways. Well, I think we probably should close out. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Rebecca and Mari and Ari for joining me. This has been On the Nose. If you like it, please share it. Leave us a review. Visit jewishcurrents.org. Subscribe. Do all the things. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.